Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm your host, Alex Andreu. The US dollar's role as the primary reserve currency for the global economy means that what happens at the Federal Reserve has the potential to affect billions of lives around the world. But what does the Fed do and how does it work? My guest today is Director of the Department of Political Science at the University of Minnesota and co-author of the book Fed Power, How Finance Wins. Welcome to The Bunker, Larry Jacobs. Good to be with you. Larry, uh, before we met up, I was reading uh, an article that future President James Garfield wrote in the February 1876 edition of the Atlantic magazine. And some of the stuff he says, I I will quote one little bit. Uh, He says, no one can read the history of this year without observing the great reluctance, the apprehension, the positive dread with which the statesmen, the statesmen and people of that day ventured upon the experiment of making treasury notes a legal tender for private debts. Um, so can we start with some basics? How was the Fed set up and what was its scope originally? Those are good questions. Um, So the Federal Reserve is the central bank in the United States. Its uh, role is to um, provide uh, access to capital. It's got a kind of private window, you could could think of it as, where banks go to to put their deposits. It's known as the banker's bank. Um, It also plays a role in terms of the overall economy by changing the interest rates that are charged. So when we go to put money on a credit card, the interest rates on that credit card is influenced by whether the Federal Reserve is raising or lowering uh, interest rates. Um, And that just means the cost of borrowing goes up and down. And it uses that to try to control inflation when it's high as it is now. They'll raise rates to try to push down uh, spending. They want their, the message to consumers is, don't spend so much. If you do, it's going to cost you more. At least people who are sensitive to um, prices going up and down. There is a small group of people who are so wealthy, that sort of interest rate change doesn't really matter. But when the economy is not doing well, the Federal Reserve will lower interest rates. And the message then is go out and spend consumers. If you're a business, go out and invest. At the moment, we see interest rates going up high and it's had effects on the economy. It seems to be slowing or in some cases reversing interest rates. It's also having these effects that people off the front pages have been warning about, that it is um, putting a lot of pressure on investors and banks that had already made investments, particularly in long-term bonds. They lost the value of that, and that can have all sorts of implications, which we're starting to see. So that's what the Fed is. Um, it's got these two powers, the bank of the bankers. It plays this role as a kind of a rudder for the economy going up and down. But the key thing to remember about the Federal Reserve is it's its own operation. Maybe the Defense Department, you would say, has got tremendous power to do what it wants. The Federal Reserve stands alone in terms of domestic institutions or its autonomy. You'll see Federal Reserve chairs testifying in Congress, but the Federal Reserve is not really beholden to Congress. It gets revenue from its operations in um, uh, capital markets. It doesn't rely on Congress for any appropriation, which is usually the way in which Congress tries to heal uh, agencies and departments. 
Um, its officials have tremendous latitude. Uh, there's a section in the Federal Reserve law that established it in 1917 that says, you do what you think is necessary when you see an emergency. So how is that different to other world banks, just to put it in context? Because here in the UK, there was a big hoo-ha about making the Bank of England an independent um, body uh, some years ago. But for instance, it is still the government that appoints the governor of the Bank of England. Or So, so the executive still has quite a big say in how the Bank of England is run and what it does. Uh, and and certainly in recent years, through global financial crises, we've also found out that there are big back channels in which the Treasury communicates constantly with the Bank of England, and basically they have almost a coordinated approach. One does the monetary side, the other does the fiscal side. So how is the Fed different to that? Well, certainly there's a lot of back channeling. Uh, the Federal Reserve uh, chairman um, or chairwoman um, is certainly a regular conversation with the Treasury. Um, the relationship, though, I think is is different in the sense that the Federal Reserve Board jealously guards its independence. Um, it coordinates, but you see at times tension between the two as the Federal Reserve fights to maintain its independence, its monopoly, really, over Uh, monetary policy. It's very, and there's some extraordinary moments in history that show that. Federal Reserve also, um, the magnitude of its intervention is quite remarkable. If you remember back to 2008-9 crisis when you had subprime loans that blew up um, the banking system and and really uh, shook global finance, the Congress stepped in with something called um, TARP, and then the Federal Reserve started to step in again without any laws being passed, without any kind of approval by an elected official, and created a set of institutions known as uh, facilities. And these extended credit at a time there was a credit crisis. So it's an extraordinary opportunity for institutions that were finding it hard to get credit to all of a sudden get credit at very low cost. It's immeasurable, the value of that. Well, the amount of the the assets that the Federal Reserve was extending was 10 times larger. It was almost half of the gross domestic product in the United States in 2009. So these are extraordinary uh, capacities the Fed has. And again, it's independent of lawmakers. If you believe in a kind of democratic accountability, it's not happening. Tell me about Jerome Powell uh, and what direction he's taking it in so that we can bring this conversation to firmly to the now. So Jerome Powell is the current Federal Reserve uh, chairman, nominated initially by uh, Donald Trump as president, and then confirmed by the Senate, which is a normal process. Um, then Joe Biden renominated him. He's been a little more, um, uh, I'd say, cautious in some respects. But the basic orientation, and I think this holds across whoever is the Fed chair, at least in the last several decades, has been to support finance. And so you see this in several ways. One is by extending this extraordinary uh, credit during a credit crisis. Uh, We saw that in 2008. We've seen it in the last few weeks for banks that were uh, unnerved by the collapse 
of the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and, and other banks. Um, and again, this has become standard behavior where you've got um, the kind of central bank of the United States stepping in as a guarantor of stability and sends a powerful message to investors, some of whom engage in quite risky behavior, that you do what you want. If things blow up, the government will step in and pick up the pieces. Uh, there's a word for that. It's called moral hazard. And this is now you know, baked into how the Federal Reserve operates. The other part of Federal Reserve is it's supposed to be a regulator. In other words, um, and particularly after a law was passed following uh, the 2008-09 crisis called Dodd-Frank. And Dodd-Frank was supposed to put an end to the Wild West, the casino finance system we have in America. But what we found is afterwards, a good bit of Dodd-Frank was never implemented. More recently, we discovered that the uh, Dodd-Frank was reformed in 2018 under Donald Trump. There was a lot of Democratic support for that reform, along with uh, unanimous Republican support. And the argument there was, let's roll back the Dodd-Frank regulations for banks with less than $280 billion in assets. They don't need this. We're just holding them back um, from doing their good work. Well, that's the, precisely the kind of banks that we've seen failing in America. Um, and you might wonder, how could the Federal Reserve make the same mistake that it made in 2008, which is not being the policeman? And I think that's the big question. Why doesn't the Federal Reserve follow the laws and the um, responsibilities it has to make sure that the banks don't become such gamblers? that they threaten all the money of depositors and really the stability of our um, economy. What would you say has been the biggest recent mistake that the the Federal Reserve has made? Just to give us an example, because what I sense from what we've we've talked uh, so far, is that there is an agenda that that has to do with the nation, and then there is an agenda that has to do with the Fed, and the two don't necessarily always go hand in hand. So occasionally, the Fed's agenda has the potential to hurt the national agenda, as it were. So can you give us an example of that? Yeah, well, I think everyone's familiar with the bank collapses um, in America. Um, we've had, you know, several... Um, and Silicon Bank, which was the banker for um, Silicon Valley, the, the tech area, Apple and the others are located. Um, you tend to get venture capitalists uh, getting loans from them or depositing resources uh, with Silicon uh, Bank. And as we've seen a kind of decline in the economy because interest rates went up, uh, there were tremendous withdrawals from those investors in the Silicon um, Bank. The Federal Reserve supervisors were responsible for making sure that the Silicon Valley Bank had the capacity to back up um, and prevent a run on its, on its assets. Well, it gave a number of warnings to the bank saying, you're now getting close to precarious territory, you are in precarious territory, and its warnings never really reached the level of you know, this must stop. And they made took no action. 
So the question is, here we've got so-called, you know, um, financial cop who is looking the other way. Um, again, this is a pattern that happens again and again. So, you know, the storyline at the moment in America is how could the Fed make this mistake? I wouldn't say it's a mistake. I would say it's a behavior pattern. Um, the Federal Reserve is not a reliable regulator because its interests are the interests of finance. That's how it, it finance. Literally, the Federal Reserve's revenue come from the financial sector. Complaints from banks and from other finance uh, financial interests uh, have tremendous impact in the way in which the Federal Reserve thinks. And so this kind of pushback during the Trump years uh, that led to the repeal of parts of Dodd-Frank, that very much was weighed by the Federal Reserve regulators. And you could see them pulling back from even uh, the most basic uh, regulatory functions. Now we've got the new head of regulation in the Federal Reserve saying, no, 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 we're going to do a much better job. And I can guarantee you that in two, three, four years, we'll be back to the leniency that has led to the current set of bank failures. It's just built into the Federal Reserve. It is not independent of finance. It is part of finance. I go back to Garfield, who again said, whoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce. And while it's the curse of the aphorism to overstate the case, do people, voters at large, underestimate the power that this, that this organization has on their everyday lives, actually? The Federal Reserve is very skillful um, in obscuring what it does. It encases its policy decisions in a in a kind of lexicon that's impenetrable to most people. And in fact, I'm impressed by how few of my colleagues who study politics know anything about the Federal Reserve or central banks. It's a tiny, tiny number. And the reason is the entry of learning about central banks and capital markets is pretty high. It's easier to count votes in Congress than it is to figure out what the Federal Reserve. Uh, is actually doing. So no, I don't think the general public appreciates what the Federal Reserve does. A lot of what the Federal Reserve does doesn't get media attention. It's very rare what's happening literally today with congressional hearings on the Federal Reserve's um, failures related to the collapse of uh, banks recently. And if I flip that question um, over, just for balance, has it also become an easy scapegoat for politicians who want to shift blame? Do they occasionally attach too much blame on, on its influence uh, when it's really them that have um, made their own decisions? Well, I think that's fair. And I think, you know, there, there's a somewhat complicated argument there. And I think it is a kind of a, a blame avoidance strategy to some extent. In other words, the Republicans and Democrats roll back parts of Dodd-Frank in 2018. Um, and now Democrats and Republicans coming forward equally blaming the Federal Reserve for the collapse of uh, the Silicon Valley Bank and other banks in the recent uh, weeks. And they kind of hold up their hands and saying, Federal Reserve, how could you have made these mistakes? <laughs> and the question, at least the Democrats are raising, is you Republicans, you passed these laws in 2018 that rolled back regulations that might have been helpful in policing um, these banks. Now, in fairness, 
even if the Federal Reserve had had the authority from Dodd-Frank and, it, and the rollbacks had not happened in 2018, it's unclear to me that they would have done much um, for several reasons. One is the type of so-called stress test where they analyze the books of banks did not examine last year the impact of higher interest rates. And so the higher interest rates um, undercut the value of these long-term bonds that many banks held and that the Silicon Valley Bank held and used as um, as kind of collateral or backup to its, uh, its holdings. Um, in other words, it didn't have the capital requirements that Dodd-Frank had, had said you need to have. So yeah. You don't have a, a run on banks. Well, you know, even if Dodd-Frank had not been rolled back, there would have been most likely this crisis. So, yes, you've got you've got the, the politicians giving authority to Federal Reserve to take certain actions. Federal Reserve is under pressure from those lawmakers who are lobbying them, along with lobbyists for the banks to not actually uh, carry out their regulatory functions. Uh, when things go wrong, politicians go back and say, why didn't you do this better? Even though, <laughs> even though they, they had kind of been lobbying them not to do a great job. I was going to ask you about what you think key reforms are for sort of making the system better. From that, I would guess that separating the regulatory function into a, a different body that's more accountable and more tightly controlled would be one of them, and um, because that, after all, is a is a, a a function of the executive that's delegated to the Fed. The Fed doesn't have some god given right to it. Uh, how do you think the Fed would react <laughs> to that? But how do you think the Fed would react to that? Would it would it look kindly on its powers being uh, curtailed in that way? You can start in in twenty seventeen when the Federal Reserve is passed. Uh, up through today, and you'll see it's been a steady march of expanding authority um, and capacity, and it guards those interests very jealously um, and fights off efforts to rein it in. So yes, the Federal Reserve right now is really an unmatched domestic institution in terms of its power and capacity and independence. Uh, whenever there's a threat to the Federal Reserve's autonomy, it will marshal its teams of, of supporters, including lobbyists for banks and other financial interests, uh, its allies in Congress, and they push it back. Um, there's tremendous, you know, um, story around even the passage of Dodd Frank, which came after the 2008 and 9 implosion, in which you had 13 million households dragged into threats to possess their houses because of foreclosure. You had Tremendous rise in unemployment it was a disaster. And even at that moment, you saw the Federal Reserve's capacity to push back in action. And they were able to, to block very important reforms. They were able to delay reforms that were later killed during the, the Trump years. It's a formidable institution. But I agree with you. I think one step would be to create a system where the Federal Reserve, like other central banks, had responsibility for um, uh, monitoring monetary policy, but not regulatory policy. Because you mix the two, and then you've got um, you know an interest in terms of not being a policeman, 
And, and can I also ask you, just as a final question, um, focusing very much on what's going on now, I had a chat with Professor Neil Malhotra about the debt ceiling uh, a couple of weeks ago. And one of the issues um, he mentioned that raises stakes in these sort of standoffs is the Fed's apparent inability to distinguish between what bills to prioritize and and what bills not to pay. Uh, it's either full flow of money or a complete default. Is that a fair criticism? And is that something that could be changed quite easily? Yeah, I mean, there's some truth to it. I mean, the way I would put it is the Federal Reserve has got uh, certain accounts where there are surpluses in them, and they're tapping into those accounts in order to pay uh, the bills that are coming in right now. Uh, hmm. But there's an end to this game. I mean, they they can decide which bills to pay and which accounts with surpluses and to draw on, but it does come to an end. There's a finite date. Um, we don't know exactly when it is, but we're told it's in June. And that's the point at which Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling, which, you know, it's a ridiculous um, uh, kind of anachronism. Um, the money's already been spent. And so what Congress is saying, we spent the money, we're not sure we're going to pay the credit card. <laughs> I mean, it's it's ludicrous, and it's used as a way to kind of try to, for Republicans to put pressure on a Democratic president. Um, it's very interesting. Republicans didn't really talk about this when Donald Trump was president. It's so interesting that markets seem to be so convinced that eventually the rational thing will happen, that they're not really pricing in the sort of mega crisis that could result in the rational thing not coming to pass? Well, it's April. Um, when we get to the end of May, <laughs> the deal hasn't been reached. Um, might be different. Interesting times in the Chinese sense, I think. Professor Larry Jacobs, thank you so much for such an interesting conversation. Good to be with you, Alex. Take care. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of a fellow Greek, Sophocles. Money is the worst currency that ever grew among mankind. It sacks cities. It drives men from their homes. It teaches and corrupts the worthiest minds to the basest deeds. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandre. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. With additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. Art direction by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>